it struck me a little bit this morning as Wayne was talking about <clears throat> Tim being out of town to install Phil Henry in Arizona. And it made me think that there may be some people here this morning that don't know what it means to, for someone to be installed. You're probably thinking at this point of a hot water heater or something. And the reality is that Phil Henry is a, a man that was a part of this church in the past and that he is uh, gone and studied and is a minister and he is being installed as a minister of a church in Arizona and that's what Tim is doing. But we're, we're grateful that that's going on and glad for Phil and for Polly and for their children. Uh, I wanted to touch a couple of things. Wayne said I was going to talk about small groups. I wanted to talk for a minute about the car wash that happened yesterday. Did everybody know that we washed cars here yesterday? Are you aware of that? Well, we had a car wash here yesterday. The deacons planned it, and it's, I think we washed about 25 cars. One Hummer. That's a bigger car. I was surprised at how tall those things are. But... Um, uh, we had a, a great time just giving away uh, kindness of washing people's cars. And the joy of that is, of course, that and it's something that you can do for free. There's many things that you can do for free for people. But the joy of that is that it really is a picture, a very, very, very small picture of the reality that Jesus Christ has given to us by loving us and by dying for us and by saving us from our sins. And so uh, it was uh, an enjoyable time. And I think the deacons have leaf raking in mind next. So get your rakes out and tune them up. And we'll be going through maybe some neighborhoods and, and raking leaves. I wanted to, to say something about the small groups as well this morning. As Wayne mentioned, we're in our third week of small groups, uh, home fellowship groups that are meeting in the church. And at present, all of them meet on Sunday night. That probably won't stay the same, but at present, that's when they meet. And if you would like the opportunity to be become a part of a more intimate group of people where you can get to know some people and have some good friends, where you can study the Bible together, where you can have fun together, where you can do ministries together, I want to invite you to be a part of one of these small groups. There are, there are maps and information on a back table back in the, in the uh, foyer about them, but you're welcome to call me at the office or call the secretary at the office or talk to me after church. I'd be glad to explain them more to you. One thing I would say is that the groups operate on a uh, kind of a cycle so that in every eight-week period they're supposed to do a couple of uh, weeks of different things so just before you would go to one, if you haven't been to it before, be aware not to drop in, but call ahead to make sure they're going to be where the map says they're going to be on that specific night. Because a couple of nights within the cycle, they're at a different place, perhaps. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25, please. I keep a few favorite websites on my computer, and one of my favorites is the Astronomy Picture of the Day site. Have any of you seen that site before? I love the site because they give you some fantastic uh, celestial images coming from different telescopes, the Hubble telescope, other telescopes. 
And so as, as I view that, I usually view it daily, catch up if I haven't seen the, the images for a couple of feet, three or four days. But uh, in this past week or so, they had an image on this site of a comparison between a certain galaxy called M51, which is a spiral galaxy, looks like a pinwheel, and the Hurricane Isabel. And they set these two images side by side on the site, so you got to see both of the pictures at one time. And it was very interesting because they looked so much alike. The hurricane had the same shape as the spiral galaxy. And the shape, as they say on the site, was, is called a logarithmic spiral. And I'm not sure what logarithmic actually means. I'm just glad I can say it. <laughs> I don't know why they don't just say pinwheel or something like that. But the, uh, the shapes are the same, and there are other shapes that we see in creation that look like this, like the nautilus shell and other different shapes that we see around. What's so interesting about this is that I see, as I view these things, I see God's design on these various shapes and on these various things in creation. They look so much the same. The patterns are so much the same. Even though the Isabel was a huge hurricane, the uh, M51 galaxy is a very big thing. Okay? But yet the shape and the idea because of the design, is so much the same. Well, just as we see these patterns in creation, we also see them imprinted throughout the Scripture. And we see the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ imprinted throughout the Scripture and shown throughout the Scripture. And just as the Scripture shows us that uh, we need deliverance from death and entrance into His kingdom, and that this happens through our understanding of what He reveals to us and our faith, and just as we see the same understanding and faith continue in our lives as we are sanctified, we have to have understanding and faith. It's part of the pattern. And just as we grow in the church and we uh, become part of the church and we exercise what I'm going to be talking about this morning as I talk about our spiritual gifts, even as we exercise those things, we still see the pattern of understanding and faith as it's laid out in the Scriptures. So this is what I'm going to be talking about this morning, and we're going to use as our scripture, Matthew 25. There are three sections in this chapter. The first section has to do with the wise and foolish virgins and their uh, having enough oil in preparation for the master's return, or not having enough, as the case may be. The second part of this uh, uh, chapter has to do with the parable of the servants and the talents, and this is the part we're going to be dealing with this morning. And the third part of this chapter has to do with the Judgment Day and Jesus' uh, analogy of the Judgment Day using the, the, uh, the uh, analogy of the sheep and goats and how they are divided one, one way and one the other. But this morning I want to talk about specifically the parable of the three servants and the talents and have you understand that it's in the greater context of Jesus talking about the end of time and judgment and the end of the day. So let's look at Matthew 25, starting at verse 14, please. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it, that is the day or the day when Christ returns, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who 
called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to one who has, the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we don't talk about talents today in the same manner that this is referring to. Talents in this scripture are large sums of money, very large sums of money. And so when the master is giving the slaves these talents, he's giving them large chunks of money for them to manage while he's away. And it made me wonder as I read this, how does this master feel about his slaves? And how do these slaves feel about their master? And I thought, well, perhaps first we ought to consider a more contemporary reference for the master-slave relationship since I don't think any of us own slaves at this point. Our closest contemporary reference would be the relationship between an employer and an employee. Now, when I say employer, I was thinking, well, okay, a lot of people are employed by big corporations like GE, so is that what I mean by the master-slave relationship, if you work for GE? And I think that would be a difficult one because in GE, you're working for such a huge corporation, you actually have very little personal contact with the man who really runs it or who's really responsible. I worked for one summer um, on a paint crew where we painted houses, and it was owned by the guy who took us every day to where we were painting. And that was more what I'm talking about and more what this is talking about in the Scripture 
when it talks about someone who's uh, in authority giving and investing in another person. Every day we went and painted and every day we came home and we went to his house most days and we washed out our paintbrushes at his house. Now the president of GE doesn't have guys over to wash off light bulbs at his house later. You see what I'm saying? It demands us that we understand that this is a personal relationship between the master and the slave, between the owner and the worker. It's more like if you were a person who worked on a building crew and you're the owner of the building company and the guy who worked with you and watched over the crew or crews every day were to come to the crew and say, I'm going away for three months on vacation to visit my relatives in Europe. And he would distribute out the tools to the different ones on the crew and say, I want you guys to keep making me money. I want you to use what's mine. I want you to use my resources. And I want you to keep working for me and make me money. And when I come back, I want to see a profit. Now, how would we feel if our boss came to us and did that? Well, you might feel nervous. Suddenly you're responsible to make the profit or to be in charge. You may feel excited or honored that the boss asked you to do that. Well, how did the slaves in this parable feel when the master came to them and gave them these talents? Well, I think the parable tells us how they felt. If you look at the first two slaves, the ones who took their money and made more money with it. It says in verse 16, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. He didn't waste any time. He just took off and started working. And when the master came back, what did he say? What did he say to the master? Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See? I have gained five more talents. I think it tells us that he was glad to go and do the work. He was glad to have been given the, the uh, responsibility and the ability to do it. And that when he came back, when the master came back and he was reviewed, he was thrilled to be able to report, look what I've done with what you've given to me. And the same thing happened with the one with two talents. Immediately, it says, likewise, as with the first one, immediately he went out and he gained two more talents. Didn't waste any time. And when the master came back, he too reported, see what I have got you. I had two, now there's four. And they were both applauded. They were both praised by their master for the work that they had done. How did the one who received the one talent feel when he received that talent? What were his thoughts? He went and buried it. He went out and buried it. Something was wrong with his understanding of and his confidence in his master. Something was defective in his life. Now, Jesus here is talking in a parable, and he's trying to teach these people something using a story, and he's also teaching us something using a story. He's obviously talking about himself 
He is the master. He very soon after this went away, leaving those whom he had trained in charge. The greater context is the end of time, and that's when he will come back, as he promised that he would. And Jesus invests in each of his followers individually. And he invests in them according to their own ability. And by saying that in this scripture, as we read, that he invests according to their ability, we must infer that the slave that received the one talent had what? He had the capability, he had the ability to go and invest that talent and make something with it. There was something possible there. Jesus invests individually, and he expected a return. He said, even if you would have placed it in the bank, I would have gotten interest. But you didn't do that. You buried it in a hole. That got nothing. Of course, in talking about Jesus, what is it that he has invested in his followers? Well, his greatest investment was his life. That he gave his very life for his followers. And if you don't understand this, and you don't understand the love of God, I would encourage you to read in the Bible, in the book of John. Start reading in chapter 3. And read what it says about and around that familiar verse that you may or may not have heard about God loving the world. Thank you. About God loving the world so much that he gave his life, that he gave his only begotten son for the world. That, of course, was the primary investment that Jesus made. But he didn't stop there. He gave his Holy Spirit. He gave his Holy Spirit to the church so that we would have the ability to be freed from our sins and that we would be in process of sanctification and change. That's just part of those, that pattern that I was talking about earlier. He gave salvation... He gave his spirit to sanctify, but he didn't stop there. The scripture says very clearly that Jesus, when he left, distributed gifts to his followers and that he still distributes gifts to his followers, just as he gives us his spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the gifts of the spirit Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, 
are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we are all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the eye says, because I am... Because I am, if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each of them, in the body, just as he desired. And skipping down to verse 27, now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. Again, in Ephesians, if you want to read in chapter 4, you see, it says in verse 7, But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on and it talks about how he ascended and gave gifts to men. And then it goes on and it talks about how the authority and how the work is done in the church and how the church is edified through the gifts that God has given. This is Jesus' investment in us. His life the Holy Spirit, the gifts that he gives to the church, an investment to the church. I have a niece who works for a social services place in uh, Flint, Michigan. And she works with families who are having difficulty with their children. She works with them, uh, trying to get them through the process. Some of their children have been taken away. She works with foster families and all different types of situations and circumstances. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. And I was talking with her and I said, what is your goal? What do you want to see happen with your life? What do you want to affect by what you're doing? And she says, well, I want to see families. I want to see them get better. I want to see them be stronger. I want families to develop. I want to, I want to see families work. And she is a believer. She is a Christian. She said, I want to see families work. I said, well, how do you think, how do you think families could work best? Well, she said, well, if the parents would do what parents need to do. If they would lead their children, if they would take care of their children, if, they would, if the husbands would be husbands and the wives would be wives and the fathers would be fathers and the mothers would be mothers, then families would work. I said, does your organization really teach people how to be husbands and fathers and mothers and wives? Are they going to get that through that organization? Well, no. Where is the context? Where can you find a context for people to learn how to be these things? I said, the only context I know of is that which is given to the church. The church is the only place where you have the message that reconciles husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children. That's the only place where you have the context for that reconciliation. Jesus has given gifts to the church. It is unlike anything else. His church. Unlike anything else, He invests in the church by investing in us individually as members of it. He invests in us according to each one of our abilities. Some of us have, a few of us have multiple gifts. If you look around, you might see someone or think of someone and they say, wow, they have, they just have multiple gifts. And Maybe a few more of us have several gifts. 
that we exercise and we, we say, wow, look at all those and several gifts. But for the most part, most of us have one or two gifts that God has given us that we're responsible for to exercise in the church. And Jesus is expecting a return from us on what he has given, given to us. He expects a return. Well, how do we grow our gifts? How do we grow our gifts like these men grew the talents and invested in the talents? Well, the answer is simple. Spiritual gifts are to be exercised. They're to be developed. They're to be worked, to be proven. I have brothers that own horses, and they're big draft horses. And when I'm thinking of a particular pair that one of my brothers has, big old mares, big, big horses. And when he bought them, they were just kind of flabby and fat. And then he started working them and working them and working them and pulling wagons with them. And then he had me ride in the wagon, which really worked them. And, he, and, he, and they pulled around. Well, I came home a few months after he got them, and now these big horses, they're just all bulging muscle. They're bulging muscle. Because they've exercised what they have, and they're getting a return for their exercise. We're to exercise our gifts. It's obvious from the 1 Corinthians passage that our gifts are to be practiced in the church for the benefit of the church, individually and corporately. It's one of the great things about the home fellowship groups that we're doing is there's opportunity in that context for you to work and exercise the gift or gifts that God has given to you and to grow it and to develop it. Sometimes, though, we bury our gifts. And how do we bury our gifts? Well, we bury our gifts simply through spiritual inactivity. We don't use them. We don't use our gifts, and this is the way that we bury them. We bury them by being anonymous, losing ourselves in the crowd. We go to church, but we never get to know anyone. We never get close to anyone. We never allow ourselves to make relationships that are really relationships where we can give to others and where others can speak into our lives. We don't want other people to find out about us. There's a danger of people knowing about us, isn't there? There's a danger of people knowing just who we are. Because then they really know us. If we can stay away, then they won't know us and, and we don't have to worry about what they think. If they get close, they might know us, and then we might have to be concerned about how they perceive us. We might possibly be, be changed by the relationships. Relationships are so messy. So we just come maybe on Sunday morning or to certain events and never allow ourselves that, that opportunity to have more relationships. We bury our gifts in anon anonymity. We bury our gifts sometimes in being busy, we just busy ourselves with lies, with our entertainments, with our functions, with all the things that are going on. Uh, they just consume our time, our amusements. We can insulate ourselves in this way so that we really don't have to ever become a part of the church. We're around, but we're just too busy. We've insulated ourselves from it. Sometimes we bury our gifts in the excuse of authority. We think, well, I only have this one gift and the pastor or the elder or the deacon, they have that gift too, 
And so they're obviously so good at it, they really don't need me to exercise my gift here. I'll just let them do it. So we kind of excuse ourselves by releasing our gift into this area of, well, the authorities will handle it. The authorities will take care of it. The authorities will do the job. Well, these are some of the how questions. How do we exercise? How do we bury? What about the why questions? Why are we motivated to exercise our gifts? Why do we sometimes bury them? Why are people sometimes paralyzed from using the talents God has placed at their disposal? Why are sometimes whole churches paralyzed from using that which God has given to them? I have a friend who had a little saying. He was a pastor in the churches I used to be a part of, and he had a little saying, too much doctrine and the church dries up. Too many gifts and the church blows up. Just the right balance of both and the church grows up. Now that sounds interesting, doesn't it? But I don't agree with it. But it sounds really interesting. It's like saying that that you've heard people say, well, that person's just so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard people say that before? Sayings like that sound good, but they oversimplify something that's so much more involved. I mean, if you look at Romans 8, it says what? Set your mind on the Spirit, for a mindset on the Spirit is what? Anybody remember? Life and peace. And the mindset on the flesh is what? Death. Well, how do you reconcile that with, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? You see? Just oversimplifies things. And what they really mean is this person is kind of a hyper-mystic. And there are people like that. I had a fellow in college that I knew, and uh, you know, I would say to him, hey, Chuck, let's go and uh, play basketball tonight. There were some guys going to the, to the gym to play basketball. And I'm not afraid of God uh, or, or concerned if God were to interrupt Chuck's life and say, no, Chuck, you're not going to go play basketball tonight. I have something else for you to do. That would be great. But when Chuck would respond, he would say, well, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. Let me see whether I should go play basketball tonight. And let me pray about what color socks I should pick out today. I've known people who did that. And it makes us think, well, what is that about? It's, it's not the same thing as having your mind set on the Spirit. But what about my friend's adage about churches? dry up, blow up, grow up? The quick answer would be whether or not Paul instructed the Corinthians to use their gifts less or to stop using them. And we know that he did not. But it's just this understanding that paralyzes some churches. And that's because they have the wrong information. Churches do not blow up because spiritual gifts are exercised there. They blow up because of ignorance and sin. Paul does not tell the Corinthians to do less exercising the gifts. He tells them to stop sinning and instructs them in the truth and admonishes them. Churches don't dry up because they love God's word and aggressively mine it for his truth. They dry up because they don't use the gifts that they have been given because they've allowed themselves to be paralyzed with the fear that they won't perform them perfectly. So they're paralyzed in the scripture. 
They're paralyzed in action. God is not waiting for us to mess up so that he can clam down on us and slam down on us. It might have been you as a father. It might have been your father as a father. But it's not the heavenly father of lights from whom every good and perfect what? Gift comes. This is not our heavenly father. It seems to me that when churches go to extremes, they either go to excessive activity or to excessive inactivity. But often the one will despise doctrine, while the other will have nothing but doctrine. And I try to think of a way to say this, and forgive me for trying to explain it in this way, but if you think of it as an aspirin, you have one extreme that's taking a non-buffered aspirin and it's going into them, and what does it do? Well, it just eats away at your stomach, and you give an ulcer. Well, it's like the heretical ulcer that develops if you have nothing but activity and no doctrine. And the other one is like a group that has a wonderful buffered aspirin, but they never do anything to give them a headache. So they never have to take it. You see what I'm saying? So you understand the analogy. Why weren't the two slaves paralyzed by the daunting task they had of, of, of taking their master's money and of developing it and growing it? They had a fear of their master of one sort. You have to know that they did. He was their master. They knew about his status. They knew about his authority. But they loved him. They loved him. And they knew what he thought of them. And they knew when they reported back to him, they were confident that he was going to say, well done. Well done. And what about the third one? What about the one who buried his talent? He was paralyzed with his fear. 1 John 1 I'm sorry, 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. 
And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. What was the wicked servant's problem? He was not perfected in love. We must come to know and believe the love God has for us. That's what it says. We must come to know and believe the love God has for us. It's that same pattern all over again. Knowledge and faith. This wicked servant did not have the proper knowledge of God's love and or he would not believe what he had heard. And so he was rightly accused of being lazy and worthless because he had not trusted God and had done no work. I mean, there wasn't much work in burying the money in the ground and then waiting around for the master to get back. What about us? What about you and I? The master has entrusted us with his belongings. Are the gifts he has entrusted with us active? If so, praise God. If not, when was the last time you used your gift to minister to his body, the church? And why did you stop? And are you paralyzed with fear? And have you buried your gift? Are we living in anonymity with our gifts? Yesterday at the car wash, I stood by the road. At first, we couldn't get very many people to come in. I stood by the road, and I was trying to wave people in. You know, I had, we had signs and everything. And I was trying to wave people in. And uh, I'm not real shy. So as I was waving them in, I would look right into their car window. And I would look at their face, and I would smile, and I'd say, come on in. We can wash a car even that dirty. Come on in. And I noticed as I would do it, as I would do this many times, I could see on people's faces the, a little bit of tension. And I know that they thought, he's right here in the car with me. He's invaded my space. I was so anonymous in this car. And now I'm not anymore. Many people never have relationships. They simply live their life anonymously. I think that's why we can possibly have as many reality shows as we do on television. Because people live their lives through them, or try to. Have you, have I become comfortable with anonymity? Even in the church you can be busy and be anonymous. You can sit on committees, you know, and be anonymous. We have lots of committees. And you can sit there and be anonymous. You can sit there and let someone else who is not willing to be anonymous do all the work and just sit there on the committee. Are we too busy with distractions and entertainments to exercise our gifts? Are we too distracted by the world around us?
Are we afraid that we'll do it wrong and blow the whole thing? You know, I remain silent so often when I should speak up. There are so many times when I'm silent when I should speak up. And I'll bet I'm not the only one. Have you relegated the work of the body exclusively to the the leaders and the pastors and your work in it? Or have you come to know and are you coming to know and to believe the love which God has for you? Let me remind you about his love. While we were yet dead in our sin, God demonstrated his love for us by ordering his only begotten son to die for us. And as it says in the passage that I just read, he died as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice, and and substitute defendant in an indefensible case that we set him up for. You see what I'm saying? This is the love God has for us. This is what he has done. It's no coincidence that in 1 John 4, it talks both about Christ's sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins and about the fact that perfect love casts out fear. It's not coincidence. It's for us to know and to believe. If we have believed this in confessing our trust in Christ as our Savior, Why have we not appropriated that trust as Christ being our master? If we have spiritual life in Christ, he has saved us from death. It is clear from the scriptures that he is our master and that we now belong to him. And that he has distributed to us gifts and that we must be doing the work of developing them. Knowing this, the love God has for us, we no longer have the fear. The fear of the sting of death is gone. He saved us. The fear of the fires of hell are gone. He's delivered us. The fear of sin controlling our lives is gone. He sanctifies us. The fear of exercising our gifts also should be gone. He loves us. He's given us to one another to care and love for one another. There is no heavy burden, no heavy yoke, no hard yoke. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. I want to close with verses here from Matthew 11. 11.25-30 At that time Jesus said I praise you Father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants Yes Father for this way was well pleasing in your sight All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. This is what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray.